All right, 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, 
Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they sat down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. And with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. Like David in this text, there are times in our lives when you bring us into the valley of vision, where we live in the depths but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, we behold your glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our valley.
In Jesus' name, amen. The prayer I just prayed is adapted from the opening prayer in a collection of Puritan prayers by uh, Arthur Bennett. It's called The Valley of Vision. And I felt like that prayer reflects a little bit of where David is in this text. Perhaps a place many of you have also been. David finds himself in a valley in this text, a deep valley. And yet he also finds that the valley is a place of vision. And as he passes through a valley in this text, what you need to see is a bad king and a good king. And the way that valleys and friends point us to the good king. So we'll begin by looking at the bad king. That's my first point, the bad king. If you were trying to take over a kingdom and you didn't have an army to do it, how would you do it? Well, you've got to build some sort of base, right? You need to find some people who will follow you. Absalom is a pro at this. He's got a four-step process to stealing the hearts of a nation. So what's his four-step process? Well, first, glamour. you got to look the part. Uh, you'll remember, perhaps from last week, if you were here with us, that Absalom has got the lovely locks. He's got the blemish-free face down. So the next step that we see in our text today is to make sure that everybody pays attention to him. So he, he gets himself a chariot. Never mind that chariots are useless in the mountainous terrain that surrounds Jerusalem. That doesn't matter. This is an image thing. He gets a bunch of uh, fanboys to run in front of him and cheer whenever he goes anywhere. And he gets up early in the morning. So everybody knows there's Absalom clattering through the streets, hard at work, you know? He's headed to the city gates. And you got to understand that in the ancient world, the city gates, that's the happening place in town. Okay, so usually the city gates, they're, they're much wider than the wall. Uh, there's multiple gates, at least two, maybe more. And there's a space in between the gates that's all shady because of, because of the arch. Uh, and so that was the place to hang out. That's where all the important people were. You only got a seat there if you mattered. And everyone entering or leaving the city would have to go past these people. So they would know the important news first. If you wanted to make friends, that was the place to be, in the city gates. And so there Absalom puts into action the second part of his plan. He offers... Abundant promises. You see, Absalom is a, crafty, is a crafty guy. He knows the easiest people to persuade are those who are in need. And so he targets anybody who comes to Jerusalem looking for justice. In those days, you could get justice by uh, speaking to the elders in your town. But the final court of justice was the king. Right? So if you wanted to appeal something, or you had a case that had national interest, or the, the guys, the elders in your town were scoundrels, or there just weren't any, you had to go to the king. He was the guy who could fix things for you. We saw last week how the woman of Tekoa went to see King David for justice, although, of course, her case was a fake. 
So as these people came into town, and the only way to come in was through the gate, so Absalom would see them, and he'd grab them and pull them aside. He'd ask them where they were from, and then he would immediately tell them, oh, you've got a good case. Your claims are right. He doesn't even ask them, of course, what their claims are. Uh, he also hints, right, that the justice system is not so great in Israel. He says, you know, there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Now, we don't know if this is a fair critique or not. Maybe it was. Maybe there is some problem with the justice system that, that Absalom is taking advantage of. Or maybe he's just making this up. What we do know is that he was very free with his promises about how he would fix everything. If he were the judge, and notice how careful he is, right? He doesn't say, if he were the king, though, of course, that's exactly what he means. If he were the judge, everybody would get justice. Now, that translation doesn't actually say quite enough. The verb there translated justice means he would declare them to be in the right. So he's, he's not just saying everybody would get a fair hearing. Right? Maybe that's what you thought initially. Actually, he's saying, everybody, I would declare in everybody's favor, is what he's saying. Now, that is obviously an impossible promise, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All he needs is for people to be discontent with David and to think, you know what? Absalom might be a good replacement. That's his goal. His third technique if you're looking along with me, is to pretend to be a man of the people, right? So in verse 5, he tells us that, that when people would come uh, to pay homage to him, because he was the prince after all, he would, instead of letting them bow to him, he would grab them and give them a nice, friendly, family kiss. Um, we, we remember from last, last week that David gave Absalom a big, phony kiss at the end of the text. So in that context, we're right to doubt whether Absalom really meant these uh, kisses. But it doesn't matter. Again, it's all about his image. He's just setting the right image. Absalom is making a play to steal the hearts of the men of Israel. That's the center of this section of the text. Uh, the end of verse 6 there. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But there's one more part of his plan, right? I said four. And he particularly employs this one to trick his father. So step four. A little religion. He knows his old dad could not possibly resist any hint that his son might be taking his faith seriously. Right? It's a terrible, terrible trick. There are lies which are wrong, and then there are really hurtful lies which are doubly wrong. And that's what Absalom is doing here. Right? He's, he's uh, in the act of betraying his father. He's sort of given his, his father a little bit of hope that maybe he's changing, maybe he's different. It's terribly dishonoring. But, of course, his technique works. He's right again. David doesn't even blink an eye when he asks to go to Hebron. He's not suspicious at all. Even though it's been six years since Absalom made this vow and he's just now thinking about keeping it, he doesn't just trick his dad with this last technique. Actually, you'll notice, right, that he takes 200, 200 guys from Jerusalem along with him as his invited guests to this uh, worship session that's really just a rebellion session. 
These are likely most, uh, mostly David's top officials. These are people from David's court. And uh, the text says in verse 11, they went in their innocence. You see that? And maybe you wonder, why is that included? Why does the, the writer tell us that they were innocent? So if you think about this, right, these guys were not part of Absalom's rebellion, but as soon as this is announced, well, A, everyone thinks they're part of the rebellion, so their credibility as David's officials is ruined, uh, and to the nation of Israel, it looks like all David's top officials just left him for his son. And then B, if they don't join Absalom, now that they're there, well, he could just kill them. And get rid of them. It's this vicious and brilliant uh, plan. In, in one fell swoop, Absalom has cleared out David's top inner circle. And he's gained serious momentum in the eyes of the nation. So that's what we see in these first verses. But what truth emerges from these verses? Well, on the one hand, we see a successful rise to power, Right? But don't be attracted to that. Because on the other hand, we see a king who will do or say anything to manipulate people into giving him power. This is a picture of a bad king. A terrible, terrible leader. The Israelite reading this text 2,500 years ago, right after it was written, he would see this and is what we need to see too. This is the type of leader we do not want. And we do not want to be this type of leader, right? Because, you know, we could, we could easily point out, wow, politics haven't changed much, have they, uh, since Absalom's time. A little glitz and glamour, uh, some empty promises, the, the folksy, I'm one of the people, kiss the babies and shake the hand of the factory workers type feel, along with a little religion. 3,000 years, nothing's changed much, has it? We can all moan and groan about that, but, but here's the question for you. Do you try to control people in some of these ways? Using your words or your God-given gifts, or even, even pointing out flaws in other people? to convince others to do what you want them to do. Absalom is not a guy you want to follow. His, everything he does is laced with selfish, selfishness. And just, just think how different the leader that you should follow and want to be like is from Absalom, right? He came through the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey rather than a chariot. That's how Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. He had no beauty or majesty to him. He never made a single promise he couldn't keep or wouldn't keep. And his love for the, you know, the common man, it wasn't fake. It wasn't a tool for his own selfish purposes. It's so real and so abiding that it led him to sacrifice his life for his people. If you claim to be a leader of anybody in your life, how's that for a challenge? The religion of Jesus is not just a little veneer, a little religion. It's the real deal. 
So this text gives us a picture of a bad king. But as we move along and we look at David's response, we also see a picture of a good king. And if you've been reading along with us through this section of 2 Samuel, that's a little bit surprising because David has not exactly been a role model for the past couple chapters. But change is in the air here. So let's look at the good king now. My second point, the good king. There are three things that uh, I'd like you to see in David's actions here. First, he surrenders to God's will. Okay? He surrenders to God's will. And the key place to see this is, is in verses 25 to 26. This is perhaps the center of the entire text. Verses 25 to 26, where he sends the ark back into the city. Now, the Ark of God was this golden box that symbolized God's presence with his people. They've had it for a long time. And it was really the greatest unifying symbol that Israel had as a nation. It was, that was the thing. You know, that was the unifying symbol. And so controlling it politically, that would be very strategic. But David knows. You can't control God. You can't turn him into a pawn for your purposes. You can't just have a little religion in your life. You either surrender to him or you don't have it. Notice how he communicates his full surrender to God with his words. Verse 25, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That's what it looks like to surrender to God's will. These are not simply pious truths. Notice the double conditional there. If this, then this. But if this, then this. Right? David is truly in doubt. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's making no assumptions about how God will act. The only thing he's not in doubt about, actually, is that what will happen will be what seems good to God. This is the surrender that we want to see in our leaders and in ourselves. And it's the surrender that we see in our King Jesus as well. This is the opposite of Absalom's grasping, manipulating need to be in control and make what he wants to happen, happen. David says, right, here I am. That kind of submission to God, that's what distinguishes his true followers throughout time. Abraham said, here I am, when God said, leave your home and go where I tell you. And Moses said, here I am, when God said, I want you to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Isaiah said, here I am, when God said, I want you to speak my words to people who won't listen to you. We could speak of many men and women who said the same thing with their actions, if not with their words. They submitted to God's call wherever he sent them. 
Now, don't think that surrendering to God's will means, you know, just live and let God. As if believing God is truly in charge means you don't have to use your brains or your body that he made at all. No. Surrendering to God's will means you submit yourself to the way that he, he tells you how to live in his word, and then you use your brain and your body to fight for what is right. That's what David does here. He truly says, I do not know what will happen. God, you do, and I submit to it. But then, what does he do? He immediately turns and he begins to fight for what his brain, in submission to God, tells him is the right thing to do. He sends these two priests, Abiathar and Zadok, back into the city to set up this little fifth column, right? He's got these spies now who are going to tell him what's going on. Up to this point, notice, we haven't had any indication that David is, is going to fight back against this rebellion. We don't, we don't know that he's going to resist or not. Uh, but after this point, you can see David's strategic brain rolling. He's fighting for what is right. This is the second thing I want to point out to you here. First, he surrenders to God's will. Second, he fights for what is right. And David continues to do this, even as he gets farther from the city. In verse 31, if we keep moving along, you'll see that uh, he gets word that Ahithophel, which was his, his top counselor, this guy, he had the best counsel of anybody, has joined Absalom's conspiracy. That could be pretty discouraging. But what does David do? He doesn't get discouraged. He prays, Lord, turn this guy's counsel into foolishness. He's fighting for what is right. And what does that look like? Well, first off, prayer. And just like that, God responds with the arrival of David's friend, Hushai. Right? God could have struck Ahithophel dead. He could have given him a heart attack right there. But notice how simple and run-of-the-mill this answer to prayer is. It's easy to miss these things sometimes. But David doesn't miss it, right? This dude with a torn coat and dirt on his head shows up, and David happens to know him, and that's his answer. It requires action on David's part. He's got to send him back into the city, and of course it requires action on Hushai's part. So David sends Hushai off on his mission. Thirdly, and finally, the thing we want to see here about David's actions, the good king, is that David also weeps for what is wrong. Uh, yesterday, I saw a funeral procession um, along Reedy Road, and you know it had the, the police cars in the front going slowly. The only time you see police cars going slowly with their lights on, uh, the hearse behind them, and, uh, and then all the cars along line following uh, slowly and silently behind. And as soon as I saw this, it reminded me of David's procession out of the city here in our text. His uh, servants and him, you know, we, it's a mournful procession. Verse 23 describes all the land weeping, right? It's kind of extreme language, but it gets across this, this, this mournful procession out of the city. And then verse uh, 30, sorry, verse 30, we see David going up, walking up the Mount of Olives, weeping, barefoot. He's got his head covered. 
And it tells us that all the people with them also have their heads covered. They're all weeping, right? Uh, this is how you mourned evil in, uh, in Israel. In, in the book of Esther, Mordecai the Jew, he covers his head when he learns that all the Jews of Persia have been marked for death. Something very wrong is happening. Right? That's clear. This is wrong. This is not how the world is supposed to be. Sons are not supposed to do this to their fathers. Servants are not supposed to treat their leaders this way. People are not supposed to be forced to take their children out of their homes and flee. God's king is not supposed to be sent into exile. But once more, with all this wrongness going on, David shows us what it looks like to surrender to God's will. It doesn't mean we dismiss bad things as, well, after all, they're just what God has sovereignly determined. Absolutely not. We weep for what is wrong. And once more, we don't need to simply take David's word for this, right? The truth in this text is revealed in the person of Christ as well. Jesus knew the sovereignty of God's power and what he was going to do next better than anybody else. And yet he wept for what was wrong. He wept when he saw his friend Lazarus in the grave. He wept as he looked down on the city of Jerusalem, on the same Mount of Olives as, as David, and he saw this people who had rejected him just like David has been rejected, right? In the, in the same way that Absalom was an anti-type uh, for Jesus. David here is a type for Jesus. David points us to Jesus here. Like David, Jesus surrendered to the will of God. Jesus fought for what is right, and he will win. And Jesus wept. If you have suffered, please know that Jesus weeps with you for what is wrong. But there's something else we need to talk about here. How did David get to this place? Back to being the good king. How, did he, how does he get to be a type of King Jesus again after all that he's done? What happened? And so we turn to my third point, valleys and friends. My third point, valleys and friends. If you've been keeping track over the past couple of chapters, for 11 years, David has been sitting in his palace. Now, I'm sure technically David left his palace during those years, right? I'm not saying he didn't leave at all, but the inspired writer of 2 Samuel does not consider any of those moments worth telling us about. In the text here, for 11 years, we see David sitting in his palace since Tamar, his daughter's violation, he has not left the place. Symbolically, David is paralyzed. He's a couch potato. He's just sitting there. People come to him. They manipulate him. They get him to do things. He tells people to do things. But that's it. He doesn't do anything himself. That's not the David of his youth, right? We remember David. He was out fighting Goliath. So what is it that finally gets this man back on his feet? It's trouble. 
right? It takes mortal danger to get him moving again. And isn't it true that so often it is trouble that drives us to God? One of the brilliant uh, aspects of this narrative I want you guys to see is that David's physical location throughout the text actually reflects his spiritual awakening. As he leaves Jerusalem, you have to know a little bit about the geography of, of Jerusalem. As he leaves it, right, he is descending down into the Kidron Valley, which runs outside of the eastern side of Jerusalem. Right? And it mentions he, where he passes the Kidron Brook. He goes over top of it. So he's, he's descending down into this valley as he leaves Jerusalem. And, and just notice that he's not very hopeful as he's descending into that valley. When the messengers first come to him in his palace, he just sounds terrified. He says, we've got to get out of here or there will be no escape. He doesn't sound ready to fight for what is right. He continues in verse 19. Shall I today make you wander about with this? Since I go, I know not where. He doesn't sound like somebody with a plan there. He sounds like he's giving up. David. And then as we, as we get to the, the, the lowest point, the, the Kidron Valley, as I mentioned, and all the land is weeping, the text tells us. That's when David is in the bottom of the valley, just outside the city. And it's there, in that darkest of places, that he admits that he needs to surrender to the Lord. Right? And at that point of surrender, that's when he begins to fight and to weep. And we see him walking back up, out of the valley, up the Mount of Olives. In the structure of this text, how it even tells us where he is geographically at each point we see that the valley is the place of vision for David. There he sees reality, and he submits to it. Now, this is not always how the Christian life works, but it does seem like often the valleys in our life are designed by the Lord to stimulate our faith. Perhaps especially when we have grown hard independent or paralyzed by guilt or by pleasure. That's certainly what seems to happen in David's life. He's paralyzed. He's stuck. His problems have, have finally reached a crisis point. He's ignored the sins of his family again and again until he is forcibly ejected from his palace. I humbly submit to you that descending into the valley like David did here, spiritually and physically, may be a gracious gift in disguise. The other thing that we seem to see God using in David's life as we see this turnaround for him is um, the loyalty of his friends. In some sense, this whole text, and it's a longer text, we can't deal with everything, but you'll see that in some sense, loyalty is the question of the text, right? Um, because... At the beginning, David faces serious betrayal. Um, maybe some of you recall the story of Julius Caesar. 
He was the sort of the first Roman emperor. And at one point, right in the early, when he was first starting to get going, he gets assassinated uh, and killed. And the story goes of his assassination that he fought back initially uh, until he saw that his best friend Brutus was one of the attackers, and then he gave up. The, the betrayal broke him, and he gave up fighting. And, and David here, he seems like that, initially broken by this betrayal. His son, who he loves, and David does love this son, whether he should or not. His son doesn't deserve it, but David loves him. But this son has betrayed him. And, and David probably assumed that those 200 men who went with Absalom, he doesn't have any news. He doesn't know. He assumes at this point they betrayed him too. And then, of course, later on he hears that this counselor, Ahithophel, a good friend of his, has betrayed him as well. So, you know, on the question of loyalty, there's all this betrayal. But then you see throughout the text, right, there's almost a corresponding amount of, of, of loyalty being expressed. So, uh, David, first his servants in his palace, they expressed their loyalty to him, right? Verse 15, we'll do whatever you say, David. And remember, David has no information right now. Everything's a mess. It's this dark moment. He's probably wondering if everyone is against him. And yet, these servants say, look, we're with you, David. So that's important. And then perhaps even more encouraging is this whole interaction with Ittai the Gittite in verses 18 to 22. I mean, maybe you wondered why this conversation is included in the text. Well, Ittai and these 600 men, they are Philistines, right? And the Philistines, these are David's worst enemies. If anyone should betray him, it should be these guys. And notice just how defeated David sounds here. He even refers to Absalom as the king in verse 19. Almost like he's given up a bit. But listen to the loyalty of these Philistines. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. You have to believe that these words played a role in David's recommitment to God. David is ready to hand in the crown. Sorry, God, the call you've got from me is a little bit too hard. I think I'll just go wander around somewhere for the rest of my life like I did early on. Maybe you feel that way some days about your calling I'm ready to hand in the keys on this work, God. The cost is just too high. I'm just going to run away from these problems, at least for a little while. In those moments, the words of a friend can be a great gift. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. In each stage of David's trip, he runs into a different friend. In the palace, his servants. And then as he exits the city, right, getting low into the valley, Ittai and the Gittites. And then at the bottom of the valley, Abiathar and Zadok. Abiathar has been with David since he was chased around by Saul early on in his life. And then, and then finally back up on the mountain, Hushai shows up as if to balance out the news that Ahithophel has betrayed him. Don't discount the value of a friend to help you when you find yourself in a deep valley in your life. 
our text communicates that such loyalty can play a significant role in getting you back on your feet and in, in even uh, in pointing you to the need for loyalty to God, who is the true king. But what if you feel you have no friends? I can't speak to the specifics of your situation. Maybe your lack of friends is your fault. Maybe it's completely other people's faults. Maybe it's your circumstances. Maybe it's a mixture of all of those things. Either way, what I can tell you is where friendship begins. Friendship begins with an offer from Jesus. He says to you, come, walk with me. I will be your friend. And I will show you what true friendship looks like. Wherever you go, I'll go. Whether for death or for life. I will show you my loyalty. And you will come to realize that I am the one who truly deserves your loyalty. I am the good king who descended into the valley and entrusted myself completely to the will of God. I am the good king who fights for what is right and who weeps for what is wrong. And if you follow me, you will never be alone in the valley. For I will raise you up once more. I will set your feet once more on the mountain, and there you will rejoice to serve your king forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text in which we see David turning to you in the valley. Lord, sometimes this is what we need. We have to be ejected from our throne from our palace where we set ourselves up where we manipulate others where we Lord want to make everything go as we want it to go stuck in our pleasure or stuck in our guilt and sometimes Lord we need to be sent into the valley and sometimes we don't understand why we're in the valley but Lord we're grateful for this picture where we see in the life of David, Lord, that you can use these times to prick our faith, to show us, Lord, that we must surrender completely to you, to your will, for you will do what seems right, and it will be right. Lord, we thank you for these valleys. We thank you for these friends that you give us. And we thank you for the greatest friend, Jesus, the one who, Lord, is not only our friend, but is the true king, the one who truly surrendered to you, that he might have the victory, destroying what is evil, fighting for what is right, and, Lord, weeping for us and with us for what is wrong. Lord, may we trust in him today. In Jesus' name we pray.